This is Creativity and Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I visit with a stand-up comic, actor, professor, musician, and fellow podcaster. He's a veteran of The Tonight Show, has his own Comedy Central special, and recently received an Emmy Award for producing the HBO documentary on George Carlin. He's the author of the book, The History of Stand-Up, and co-hosts the acclaimed podcast of the same name. Coming up is my chat with Wayne Fetterman about the future of the funny business and how he crossed over to writing and producing. Stay tuned. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate the introduction. I met you as a fledgling stand-up comic. Where were you when you began before you moved to Los Angeles? New York City. It was on an island called Manhattan. And you made your way to California. And we met, I believe, at the improvisation. I remember the days of waiting in the hallway for us to go on. Yeah. That was one of your early clubs. Yes, it was one of my early clubs. I also, if I'm not mistaken, remember you from a little place called The Ranch. Why don't you tell people about The Ranch? Well, one of the things I love is the title, The Ranch, because it sounds like the Algonquin Round Table. It sounds like a sweeping place with cattle, and it was a ranch-style house that was the place that people hung out for coffee, cards, cigarettes, and it was sort of the default place for all comics from the Midwest and other places that were looking for something to do that night. I remember the Higgins guys were there. Joel was there. Paul Feig. Yep. I didn't know it was for just Midwest comics because I'm I'm not from New York, although I started there, but it was a real, very creative. I, I think you're underselling it a little bit. It wasn't just cigarettes and cards. It was a very creative place. I just found it very intellectually and comedically uh, thrilling. Well, it was a high adventure, but the interesting thing is nobody knew what it was. It grew from some Midwestern folks. So the Higgins brothers and Dave Allen, this group would come together. And what I can say to be honest about it is when you would call there, often nothing was going on and Steve Higgins would answer and he'd say, we're partying down. And you go, oh, okay, I'll come over and party down. And then you go and it'd be just him. And then somebody else would call. And so every night it was the place to check in until it became something. Was it someone's apartment? Who owned the ranch? Who had the rights to the ranch? It was a rental property in a suburban neighborhood. Dave Higgins, Steve Higgins, Rich Kinney, several people lived in that house. It was a rental house. It had the most blown out yard, you know, it was a browned out yard. And it was, there were just hilarious folks that were, that would show up there. And over time, everybody, and it was a kind of a lazy atmosphere in, in, in a way. If you name the people now, you'd go, oh my gosh, they must've been working their asses off, but they really weren't. (laughs) It was hanging out. And I think just like when you go to a tennis place and people play tennis in a competitive way around the poker table and, you know, over some Bergy beers, that's kind of where the craziness happened. There are legendary nights. That's what I'm saying. I feel like you're underplaying this incredible creative community that was plopped in the middle of Los Angeles in the, I assume, late 80s when it started. Yeah, but I'm not underselling the idea that it was just a dumpy hangout because that's really what it was. I will say it, it grew in its, in its reputation when Joel Hodgson came in and mm-hmm. 
took pictures uh, in a circle, 360, of all the tacky wainscoting wooden panel walls and and whatever tacky thing was there. And he pitched the idea to Comedy Central or the Comedy Channel, I guess it was at the time, that the two brothers and Dave Allen, which was called the Higgins Boys and Gruber, that they be VJs on an early comedy channel. So it, it literally, he just recreated the ranch as a location. And subsequently, they began to invite those people to be guests on the show to hang out. So nothing changed except there were cameras when they moved to the new location. Yeah. So I'm just saying it was quite wild. And I remember even Judd was there and obviously Paul Feig, who I adored. I used to do stand up with him at a place called the Variety Arts Club. Did you ever do stand up there? Did it once or twice, but I did go down and watch it frequently. And it was really a great downtown place. And didn't they have the set of the early Tonight Show or something down there as a backdrop, uh, like on one of the floors? I, I, all I know is that guy collected all kinds of show business memorabilia. He also owned the Magic Castle. I remember Paul Feig, and I used to perform on a big drum, like a big, huge bass drum that you could stand on at a wooden where the skin would be. And it was just great. I mean, yes, obviously, I knew you from the improv and from the the ranch, and also from a place called the Comedy and Magic Club, which was this room down in Hermosa Beach where Letterman used to perform there, and it's still around. And I I remember they used you in particular because you exemplified the name of the club. You could do comedy and magic at the same time. It was crazy, whereas some of us could just just do the comedy. Or there were some people who would just do the magic. But I feel like that club, in a way, Pat Hazel, was was maybe built for you. But like that was, it was called Comedy Magic. And then there was you. And I remember just being floored at like how effortless your whole act was from balancing things on your chin and the, the, the fire and the big coin around the, you know, when you would bring someone up on stage, it was just such a, Real delight to watch your act down there at the Comedy Magic and at the Improv. But in particular, I thought the Comedy Magic Club like was a perfect fit for you. I don't know if you remember it that way, but... No, no, I considered it to be home turf because it really did feel welcoming. And they did. They often had a variety act in the middle, whether that was a juggler or a magician. And it you just felt cozy there. If you did variety at another place, while I played the Melrose Improv many times... You had to get in and out through the crowd. Everything had to fit like in your hand or, you know, a small bag or something. And I, the thing I liked about watching you at the improv was that they always had a big piano sitting on stage. People that had a musical thing didn't have to haul their piano through the crowd. It was waiting for them and they could use it or not use it. I think it's because in New York, it started as a cabaret with a lot more singers. The improvs started as a singer showcase club in New York. So I think they always had a piano around. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. This is something I wrote about. I'm not pushing the book, but in my book, The History of Stand-Up, from Mark Twain to Dave Chappelle, we start around 1860 and go right to today. Yeah, I talk about how important the improv was when it opened in 62 and became basically the first comedy club. The, The idea, Pat, was like, no one ever thought the idea of putting 
one comedian on after another could be a good show. And even when you're talking about the Comedy Magic Club, the way you talked about, oh, they tried to break up the act with a variety act, that was show business for a century until comedy clubs came along and was like, oh, we can just have three acts. And they're like, what? Just comedians? Just comedians. Like, yeah. So that was a huge revolutionary point in the history of stand-up. Yeah, and that was Bud and Silver Friedman at the time that started that club in New York City. And then Bud came out to the West Coast and opened the Melrose Club. I remember making my pilgrimage from the Midwest. It was Omaha to L.A., and I had had uh, some stutter stops. I had played the Comedy Works in Denver, Colorado, and somebody there knew people at the comedy store. So it was like, you can go do an audition, which was a wait in line, stand out front, draw your name out of a hat, just a mm-hmm. torturous thing to go up for three minutes. So it was, uh, that was a very quick trip for me, but it was much later that I came back and had an audition at the improv and felt like I there, at least I found a, a place that I could get on a list. So why don't you tell people what it was like for us when we would start out, how the week it always worked around phone calls in to find out what the availabilities were. Again, I started in New York City, so we had a system where you would put in your availabilities, which was what days you were available. And the thing with stand-up in these these cities was they didn't pay a lot of money. They were called showcase clubs. So that's the improv, the comedy store in New York. It was Catch a Rising Star, the comedy comic strip, and the improv, and then other ones opened up. So you give an availability like a week before and as your career grew, you became less available because suddenly you were, like you said, playing Denver. Suddenly you were playing Seattle. Suddenly you were at Charlie Goodnights in North Carolina. Suddenly you were playing the, the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale. So, so you weren't available, and that allowed other people to develop. These places were kind of, then they still are. They're sort of a combination of a business, a nightclub, a singles bar, and a comedy college because you sort of learn how to do stand up in front of appreciative crowds. And it was, you know, it was incredible, still incredible. I mean, I, I don't think there's like a golden age of stand up and that everything sucks now or was great then. Like, I think stand up is as good now as it's ever been in the history of this art form. I'll call it an art form. Although some people think of it more as a skill. But anyway, we would just send in either a phone call and say, I'm available Tuesday through Thursday. I'm available Friday through Sunday. I'm available all week. And they would make a schedule. And then you'd find they'd call you and say, hey, you have a one spot Thursday at 830. And that was your whole week. <laughs> was your whole week. Or if you were very popular. You would be like, oh, you have three spots. You're doing two on Friday and one on Saturday. You're like, oh, my God, I'm like the king of the world. So like every week was sort of this this ego check of like how big your career was going based on how how many spots you would get at these showcase clubs. And again, not paying a lot of money. Now they are actually paying much better. But the whole idea was this was a place where you could develop. It was like a lottery draw every week. And you honestly couldn't make your plans with friends or anything because you might have a set. I remember getting things where they would say, good, you got a 1230 on, you know, Wednesday night and you go, oh, geez, okay, I'm going to have to 
take a nap or something. You know, like if I'm starting after midnight. Really? You never knew if you were following somebody. Like you, there'd be a lineup and Charlie Flesher would walk in after having done Roger Rabbit or Robin Williams would walk in or Andy Kaufman. And then they would go on and do 45 minutes. At least to me, there was always this anything could happen. And there were people who hung out there in case somebody came a little late. They'd throw somebody on really fast. They'd grab yep. somebody from a table. So there were people eating there just hoping that somebody would be late. It was a little bit of a pool of talent just sort of waiting to, to take each other's time. Yeah, the I think the my dream, and this is a dream that I've never realized, my dream was to be a comic that was big enough that could just walk into the comedy store or the improv and just like, oh, we're going to throw you up and throw off the entire schedule just to and bump everyone like that would have been. That's my dream has not happened yet. Has not happened yet. Still keeping it alive. The chances are very slim. Thin reed, as they yeah. used to say in the 1920s. So but that so I never reached that level. But it's yeah, I would have loved to. But that's what's happening today. We're going to give you all the time you want. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> I'm bumped. I've bumped everybody. There's nobody coming on. I remember in the hallways of the improv front bar or in that aisle where we were always being pushed out between the showroom and the restaurant, yeah. a conversation with you early on where you had a choice to make, which was to do stand up as regular spots or to be a house MC where you could get more stage time all week, but you could only go on a little bit in between each person. You remember that moment where you had to make a decision? I do remember that. And it was a very tough decision because for some reason at the Los Angeles clubs, the MC was not held in high regard, which was the exact flip of what happened in New York city where I started where Richard Belzer was the MC and Bill Maher was the MC and like the biggest side, and they would kind of run the show on their schedule. And it was, you could do sets in the middle. Like eventually I decided to MC. I think it did hurt my standing at the club a little bit. Cause they thought of me more as like a amateur slash professional. Uh, but I wanted to be there. I wanted to be at the club. And maybe it would have been better if I had held out and just done spots. But I was like, I just wanted to be there and have a chance to like, let's say somebody's running late to, to maybe do my set a little bit. But it was, you remember that, huh? Yeah, that was a very um, tricky decision. I mean, ultimately it all worked out in that I still work there, still get sets and no one remembers me as an MC. But at one point I had to quit MCing there. I had to stop. Yeah, I think retrospectively, your knowledge of stand-up and the people that you know and you connected with through all those time of hanging out there, you are a student of comedy as much as anyone I know. You knew people's acts. You knew when they were coming and going. Everybody knew you from being introduced by you. One of my funny moments, I guess I could share with you that I don't think I've ever told anybody, is I didn't know we got paid at all. At that time, the checks were $7.50 for a set. And they went in a checkbox with some little box that had some index cards in it yep. that had everybody's name on it. And you'd flip through alphabetically and you'd see your name and then whatever was in there, you would take it out. And that was sitting up at the box office with the, the girl that ran the ticket pickup. Mary Ann, Mary Ann. Yeah. Yeah. I never knew that was there and I never went to the checkbox. And then after a period of time, 
people started saying to me, hey, why don't you ever check the checkbox? And I thought they were hazing me. And I thought, yeah, yeah, oh, I, I'll do that, yeah. And I thought, I'm not going to be the idiot that goes walking around telling people, where are my checks? Because I totally thought they were trying to goon me. And that's this went on for the better part of a year. Then finally, somebody said, listen, you got to go to the checkbox because it's clogging the whole thing up. And I was like, where is it? I don't know anything about the checkbox. Now, at that time, they were doing, the movie Punchline was about to come out, and Tom Hanks had been going and doing some short sets to test out his material. And so when I did go to the checkbox, I'm flipping through alphabetically, Tom Hanks had a check or two in there, and then I had like 52 checks or something. There were like right. a few hundred dollars worth of checks, which was a fantastic grocery week. But I remember hesitating about, should I take a Tom Hanks check? for Like, he's never going to come in here. He's Like, I really had this great dilemma over stealing one of those checks for my wall or something. But I just remember how hilarious it was that it was really jamming this index box up. And, and people must have thought I was a multimillionaire because it was like, well, he doesn't need the money. I desperately needed the money. I would rent videos at the beginning of the week because you didn't have to pay for them till you turned them back in. That was my whole strategy of entertainment for the week. Well, that's wild. Yes, I do remember that checkbox. I didn't know that you had it in you that you'd like to steal things from Tom Hanks, but now I'm, I'm learning a lot about you. Well, it's somewhat of a confessional. I feel like if you can absolve me of this, maybe we can move right. on. Let me ask you, because of being a co-writer and a co-producer of many amazing things, how important has that prefix co been to your career? Well, it's interesting. For the Shanling documentary, it was called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling. I was the co-producer. And then I was brought on to this, pro this last project, George Carlin's American Dream, which was a two-part documentary on HBO, as a co-producer, but during, while we were working on it, suddenly I got news that like, you're being elevated to producer. I was like, well, what different, what do I have to do now that I'm not doing this co-producer? Like, Nothing. The same exact thing you're doing right now. And, but let me tell you this, because I was a producer, not a co-producer, I was eligible to win my Emmy award that I just won. So otherwise I wouldn't have been up co-producers. They don't care about the associate producers, not interested in awards, executive producers and producers get awards. So it was very lucky that they bumped me up. Now look, I would have loved honest. This is the honest truth, bad. I loved working on that Carlin doc, even if I, you know, was a, anything assistant producer, whatever you want to call me, you know, associate. I don't even, you don't have to call me a producer because I just loved Carlin so much and loved, especially his early career. Like everyone likes the later career when he's the, you know, the political pundit and he's sort of yelling at everyone. And that, but like, so, so it was just a dream, just a dream as someone who had not FM and AM and class clown and occupation fool. Everyone had those albums. I had takeoffs and put-ons. I had his first comedy album. Like mm. I was into this guy as a young kid before I ever became a professional stand-up. So it was a bit of a dream job. And then to get an Emmy award on top of that was, and to accept it on stage with Kelly Carlin, George Carlin's daughter. 
his only offspring mm. was just just a great, lucky, really fantastic moment. I'm remembering until I have early onset Alzheimer's, and then I won't remember it anymore. All right. Well, first of all, a hearty congratulations for that and to you and your producing partners because it's an extraordinary two-part documentary. And there's so much, maybe for the person who hasn't seen it, tell us why George Carlin was such a pivotal person in stand-up in terms of his influencing the future of stand-up. Well, George Carlin has sort of three, maybe four careers in stand-up that are broken up. But I think the main reason that people adore George Carlin is he was one of the first comedians to do an hour of material, do a, throw up a special on HBO, and then never do that material again, or maybe do one bit from that material again. Like, that was his thing. So... That was sort of unheard of. You sort of had an act for a long time. And look, Richard Pryor did three specials. George Carlin did 14, 14 separate specials. So it really set the bar of like, oh, I get it. Dana comedians are almost like musicians now where you put out a new album every couple of years and you tour that album. So, but unlike musicians, Comedians sometimes get punished if they do material from a previous album. Whereas if Bruce Springsteen doesn't do Born to Run and Thunder Road, they would be furious with him. In fact, he does it in his Broadway show. Uh, so musicians have it a little easier. They can, people want to hear the old stuff. So it was really revolutionary, his deal with HBO and how prolific he was year after year after year. And this is after he had a whole career in the seventies before HBO. He didn't do his first HBO special till 77. He had already been doing on camera on television stand up since the sixties. And hmm. uh, there's so much more to him, but I would say that's, that's the main reason that he was just so prolific. And there's another element in that he, you know, he was a genius with the English language. He, mm -hmm. I feel like no one uses words quite the way he does, and including myself right now describing it. And by having HBO, which was kind of the first free speech zone on television. Mm -hmm. Like before then, if you were on television, there were network censors, there was network standards and practices, as you know. And on top of that, there's advertisers. So you're sort of whatever that their worldview that they want continued, you're responsible to them as well. So when HBO started, again, Lenny Bruce had been arrested for using foul language on stage. George Carlin had been arrested in Milwaukee for using foul language on stage. Richard Pryor had been arrested in Virginia. This is in the 70s, early 70s. By 77, all of that was gone. Now comedians could say anything. And that's between you and I, Pat. That's for good and bad. Like, I feel like there's a lot mm -hmm. of unnecessary, gratuitous profanity in stand-up. But that's the deal you make. Did you also get freedom of thought? So it was really a wild, like, there's no way Bob Hope or any of these guys would be able to talk about the subjects 
that George Carlin freely spoke about from 1977 until he died in June on June 22nd, 2008. Yeah. And he was a rebel. He challenged us as a listener in, in some of his content. Can I just push back? I wouldn't describe him as a rebel at all. I would describe him as a free thinker. I would describe him as someone who hated groups, liberals, conservatives, and government, anyone that was trying to tell him what he could say or he couldn't say, he derived no authority, especially religion. Any times mm -hmm. human beings got into groups, he hated it. But you know, I don't really think of him a rebel because if you look at his career, there's nothing really rebellious about it outside. He didn't want to play Vegas anymore and wanted to play colleges, but he did the Tonight Show, which was the most mainstream late night show you could do consistently since the 60s. And he was always doing that show. He was playing Las Vegas. He went back. He had residencies in Las Vegas after he famously walked away from Vegas at the MGM and at uh, Bally's. And then finally, I can't remember the name of the last place he was playing. Is there anything less rebellious than playing Las Vegas, Nevada? Well, I think he took advantage of the forum that people would go to, and he was a truth teller. He was a fearless truth teller. And he, when you talked about his grasp of language, there was a, a poetic, rhythmic approach. He knew how to use good words, clever words, words that hadn't been heard, but he put them in a form that when you look at it, it, it there was poetry, there was universal themes, there was truth. And so I guess my only reference to rebellion would be that he did push back against a religion and against government and against policy, but he believed what he was saying and he would leave us to think about it. So I, I think more that he was willing to speak his mind, consequence be damned in terms of, you know, my understanding when I went to the national comedy center was his seven words you can't say on television were not really the standards of television until after he started saying them and they literally adopted that as part of the, you know, you can't say these. And then subsequently he went on to hundreds of other words. I remember the last time I saw him live in concert, he rolled out a scroll that had several hundred uh, dirty words. And it wasn't that they were dirty. It was the way he did it. It was like a song. It was lyrical. You just hung on every way he said the words. He was a master of that. And it all goes back to when he was a kid. Again, sidebar, ninth grade dropout, hated school, hated it, hated those teachers and stuff, although later would invite them to his shows when he did them in New York. You know, he went to a Catholic school on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But he loved, like, again, the language of it all, but he loved this guy named Danny Kay who was a film comedian, came out of the Catskill Mountains, one of the first comedian really to be discovered out of the Catskill Mountains. And Danny Kay was known for doing these super fast, super eloquent, highly audio with highly verbal dexterity, like patter songs, basically. And, mm -hmm. and so he loved that. And in a way, if you really break down what he's doing, he's sort of showing off his Danny Kay skills all through his life. Even when he does 
That last thing he did in the next to the last special, I'm a modern man, where he just goes on, I'm unplugged, I'm turned in, I'm turned off. He used like that Danny Kay ability to rattle off list after list after list from his brain. Not just read mm-hmm. it, but it was just staggering, just staggering. And again, a thrill. But I love that there was a connection to this old timey Horschbelt comedian named Danny Kay, who he absolutely just adored. And he began his career as a duo with another guy, Burns and Carlin. And he he was, I think, even a bit of an impressionist. So you do see his evolution from a short haired suit-wearing comic to a later long-haired comic, he knew enough that he had to evolve with the times and that he didn't want to be what the establishment wanted him to be. When he went on early television shows, he was that hippy-dippy weatherman stuff. That was kind of the comedy of its time, and he he didn't want to be that. Mm -hmm. He just wanted really to, to speak his mind. No, that's absolutely true, but there's a great debate among us George Carlin aficionados, and really, this might be too nuanced, but did he really want to change? Because he changed so many times with the times, or was it just, oh, this is, the hippies are now popular, not the square folks. I want to be with the hippies. Like, this is, don't forget, Mm -hmm. this has happened around the time of Woodstock. This has happened time Mm -hmm. the Beatles are growing their hair long. So it wasn't absolutely revolutionary for a comic or a performer to have long hair and kind of smoke pot or whatever that is. And but it was I will say it was sort of revolutionary for him to perform on television in a T-shirt as opposed to a suit and tie and have his hair his hair in a ponytail. But he did do this fabulous poem about his hair that I remember from one of his albums why people get upset about it. And obviously there was that show, you know, hair, but which was about this very thing. So again, I know you keep thinking of it as just like this rebel, but in a way he's just evolving with the times. I don't know, cynically to be like, okay, this is more what I feel like. And that's all. I just feel like it wasn't like, it's not like in 1965 he had long hair and would only shoot, show up in a t-shirt or anything like that. This was 69. This was already, again, the age of Woodstock and we're deep in the Vietnam war. And like, so anyway, that's, that's all I'm saying. I just don't know if he was, I get as someone who loves George Carlin, I just don't think of him as outside of like, as a kid when he was, uh, didn't hate his school and would steal and was a bit of a juvenile delinquent as like a re as a rebel comedian as opposed to just a comedian who was very willing to change his persona to fit the times. Fair enough. I think it's an astute observation, but I think that the Smothers Brothers having their television show, there was a great indication of what you needed to do if you were going to be a present-day person willing to fight that battle. And I guess he joined their war. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, the Smothers Brothers are a great example of like, yeah, they perform in in suits and ties. So, But I really admire your retrospective of your career. I've been paying attention. And one of the things that I love about you is that you you did your own three-disc set of 
your own comedy retrospective, which is essentially doing a documentary on yourself. It's an audio thing that's available on Amazon, and it's called The Chronicles of Fetterman. <laughs> and I see you're making faces, but it was... No, I'm a nostalgic guy. I love that stuff. I love archival audio. And you chronicle your journey from early stand-up through the days of coming to Hollywood, going back to New York, and the audio's quality is all over the map because at the time of recording, you're getting it wherever you're getting it. But I feel like it was an interesting journey, not only of us listening to Wayne Fetterman, but of that routine that a young stand-up goes through, it seems like it was a mountain of work to do that. And I guess I I just want you to reflect on that moment. Was that, were you between projects and you thought, this is how I want to do it? Or was it a legacy piece? I'm, I'm just curious about that because it's a very ambitious project to also start with saying, I'm going to do a three-disc set. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's going to be a theme to this entire episode, which is, I have this career that's, I'm very grateful for all of it, but it's in a way I'm a little less than what I was hoping for. I always thought, always, when I was started, it's like, well, at one point, somebody's going to come along and like, and we want to do a comedy album with you. We're so-and-so records and we're Sub Pop, we're Warners, we're Comedy Central Records. You've been doing all these TV shows. You do your own comedy. You're at the improv, you're touring, you're a comedian. No one, no one ever came up to me and said, mm -hmm. we want to do a comedy album with you. So it's like, all right. And then I started noticing that a lot of comedians using sort of the George Carlin model would record their own comedy albums once home, you know, you were able to do it and release them. I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to release my own comedy. Then I realized I had this whole archive of my act, some of it on VHS tapes from various at the, again, I started in New York and at the comic strip, we would make VHS recordings. And so I had a lot of those tapes and all of my shows that I did on television. I was like, I just had this idea of like, let me just go back and with this new technology from a company called Isotope, I really have to say that it would not be possible without them. They have a, a product called RX, which cleans up audio. It sort of takes a picture of the audio and you can draw out the noise. It's a noise reduction. So a lot of these tapes would never, 10 years earlier, this project could not exist. Could not, because there was buzz or hiss or the sound of the audience or anything. I mean, not laughing, but like plates and stuff. It's like Photoshop, you know, in Photoshop, the way you can like take out the background and just have the face, it's Photoshop for audio. It's called RX. And so I bought this program and then I went to Disney where this guy is, works on restoring old Walt Disney cartoons. And I paid him for two hours. He uses RX to clean up the audio. I said, let me just watch you work on some old Mickey Mouse cartoon. Not, I mean, literally, literally. <laughs> I, know, I know, I <laughs> know. So, so some steamboat level. So I'm watching it. So I learned how to do it from this guy. Cost me $150, $75 an hour. And just watched him. Just, that's how I learned. And then I downloaded all the audio from 
those tapes and cassette tapes and just a number of different and three quarter inch tapes. I had to get a three quarter inch machine, then put it all out, then had to clean it up, which took a long time, took a long time and then put it in an order, which was, it sounded okay. And that's how I did it. And luckily there was a company called a special thing records that puts out comedy albums of young comedians, mainly alternative comics, Mark Maron's on there, Paul F. Tompkins on there, Pat Oswald was on there, and they would record. They would record people at UCB. I said, would you like a compilation? They're like, yeah, we've never done anything like this. We love you. Let's do it together. That's how it happened. So it was quite a process. Here's the P.S. So they put out the album. A lot of those audio, not a lot, but several of those audio tracks now are on Sirius XM. And I get money every month from recordings of a VHS tape that I had in my closet that I never thought anything would happen with. And it gives me so much joy. And like you said, Pat, I guess there's a little bit of an ego thing involved also of a legacy. Like, oh, I was here. I did this. And I have to be, this is the truth. I don't want to say this too loud. Like some of those tracks are old our old early Wayne Fetterman stuff that still resonate. I don't, I would never even do them in my act anymore, but still resonate on Sirius XMs. It, the whole project has been beyond satisfying. I'm going to compliment you. You can take it or not, depending on how you respond to, to compliments, but um, <laughs> I don't. Well, that's not well, it's not well. No, I know. I know I've come to expect, but you know, I had a mom who also you give her a gift and she go, what are you, what do I need a clock radio for? And you go, just say, thank you. <laughs> just take the clock radio and then return it, but just say, thank you. No, what I want to say, and I think you'll understand the compliment is that we, at the early start of any career, you're busy wanting a network, a studio, a label, an album to come with somebody's approval. I'm in the same camp that you're in never tapped by HBO, never tapped by anybody, but we have made our own jobs up. We set a goal to do something. If somebody looked at your career on paper, having written the Pistol Pete Maravich book, which is an Amazon sports bestseller, working on these documentaries on Chandling and Carlin, the beginnings of starting out with Jimmy Fallon to help late night with Jimmy Fallon get started as a head writer, doing stand-up, podcasting, the number of commercials that you've done, the number of guest spots on television. This is a career that many people would wish for in any form, in any order. Because a network doesn't come along or a millionaire doesn't write a check, you decide, I'm going to have the Wayne Fetterman International Film Festival. You're building your own legacy and funding and also dedicated to making these experiences fun and interesting. You seem like a guy who likes, has a variety of interests and you set goals and then you find a way to be disciplined enough to achieve them. And I think that's what I'd like you to speak towards is not, not receiving this award I'm giving you here, but the importance of setting goals and of seeing things through. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm just going to be your mom now. Thank you for the compliment. Secondly, I love the clock radio reference for a very specific time (laughs) when that was a very popular item. (laughs) 
There's a <laughs> clock and a radio. That's insane. And the same, come on, what's going on here? The best part about the clock radio is it would, the alarm could be a radio station coming on as opposed to an alarm, right? Wasn't that the, the key to that, that product? That was a breakthrough. You're absolutely right. She had one where it was a digital thing and many of the little lines had burned out the bulbs. So you didn't ever know exactly what time it was like zero, zero, most of the time, and, but that could have been eight Oh one. You didn't, you didn't know. And that was satisfactory to her until she put black tape over it. So you didn't know it was a clock at all. <laughs> well, somebody very early on gave me an insanely great piece of advice that I've repeated many times. I repeated to my students and that is, the more specific your goal is, the easier it is to achieve. So let me give you an example. Like people are like, I want to be a writer. Well, that's great. You want to be a writer. Now, that's a lot of people want, want that job. Yeah, it pays a lot of money. Now, do you want to be a television writer? Do you want to write for features? Do you want to write for online? They're like, oh, no, I want to be a television writer. All right. If we can narrow it down, it will help you. What really things, if you want to do, you want to be drama, do you want comedy, do you want to do animation? So if you were like, I want to write for Big Mouth, let's say that animated show. Now you're talking because there's only maybe 100 people that can get you on that show, maybe 150 people. So you watch that show, you write a spec for that show. You look at the credits of that show. You can maybe connect through people. A lot of people are online on Instagram writers. There's an easier way to get onto big, like I'll be your writing assistant, but I ultimately want to write on this show. It happens all the time. There's a guy named Jimmy Fallon who I used to work for, as you mentioned earlier. He wanted his goal. Again, specificity is the key to this, was to be on SNL. So I knew him when he's out here before SNL. He got a pilot, a pilot for a TV show. This is the kind of thing that pe that makes people's career. And he told them, he was like, look, I will do your pilot. I will do this show. But I just so you know, I have to audition for SNL again in the spring or whenever they do it in New York and Chicago. And they were like, well, no, you, you have to commit to this show. And he's like, I can't commit to the show just for the chance to audition for SNL. Mm -hmm. And again, he ends up, of course, getting the show, becomes a breakout star on it, does Weekend Update, does some movies, and now is the host of The Tonight Show. So my goals very early on were two goals. Be a great stand-up comedian. So everything I did was geared to being a great stand-up comedian. I know you were complaining about a 10, a 12.30 spot. Like, I love 12.30 spots. I don't care what time <laughs> I want to get up on stage. And then the other thing was to be a good actor, be a good actor. I went to acting school. I dedicated myself to that. I actually, this is something I don't know if you know about. I gave up touring the country as a standup. So I would be available for commercials and stuff. So again, it would, sometimes those careers conflicted. So for the first 20 years, when we met, that's all I thought about. I didn't do, you know me, I don't do drugs, no alcohol. Yeah, I make out with girls, but if there's nothing crazy about my <laughs> lifestyle. Little humble brag in the middle there. <laughs> but then after 20 years, other things started popping up 
and other doors started opening up. And I was like, all right, I'm going to walk through these doors. That included the Pistol Pete project. That included writing for Jimmy. I never wanted to be a writer ever. That wasn't a goal. I wanted me, people to write for me. So it was, you know, like Seinfeld or something. Seinfeld doesn't write for other comedians. So those doors started opening up again. So I walked through those doors because they interest me. And that's how I got this. You know, I teach at USC. That's how this history of stand-up thing, the podcast, all of this happened. So that's been my career. And I, I'm thrilled that it's inspiring to you. And I agree. You know me. I am not a braggart. I'm not. I'm a very humble guy. I try to be. And also, I'm grateful for anything that's come my way because I'm a big believer that show business does not owe you a living. Doesn't owe you a living. Mm. Guess guess what? Cary Grant lost his contract at Paramount and couldn't get on the lot anymore. That's Cary Grant. It doesn't care about you. Show business doesn't care about Cary Grant, let alone Wayne Fetterman. So like, all right, so I'm in this and let's see what I can I can do as opposed to what they can do for me. You are quite a good writer. And you were a good writer for yourself. That's obviously why other people wanted. You're, in a way, showcasing your writing as a stand-up. And there is a trade-off there. Because a living can be made from writing where sometimes it can't from stand-up. Stand-up is fun. You're surfing a wave. And you're getting up on the board. And you're having that adrenaline. But the guy selling the surfboards is making a lot of money. The surfer's not making a lot of money. <laughs> to me, the real art <laughs> is how do you do both? How do you make a living and still get to surf when necessary. So it must be great fun when you're writing on all these award shows and it must've been a crazy thrill from going from writing for things like golden globes and uh, creative arts Emmys to receiving one. But could you have gotten there if you weren't a dedicated researcher and writer and lover of comedy, you're a sports nut. You love this story about pistol Pete Maravich and you dig into the research, you're using the same toolkit is my point. So you're the Lin-Manuel Miranda of your, of your genre of comedy, you know, like you do a little bit of all of it. Well, you contextualize it in such an effusive way. It's a little embarrassing, but I will say this, that I only do things I want to do as a rule. It's like, I, so I'm, I'm passionate about Pete Maravich. I'm passionate about the history of standup. I'm passionate about, my own stupid career. Uh, you know, I'm just passionate about George Carlin's life and Gary Shanley's life and teaching kids. Like these are things. So I obviously very early on, someone also told me this, which was let your avocation become your vocation. Like what your, your hobby, what you're passionate about. If you can make that your life work and get paid for it, it's a dream. It's a dream. So I hope I'm helping somebody. Here's the strange thing. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows who you are. But I will say yeah, exactly. that it, they could not hear this coffee shop conversation unless they tune into this. And the aha right. may strike somebody. I'm telling you, uh, you know, I remember very young, and I didn't have a diary or anything, but somewhere I scribbled on a page. It'd be fun to do a commercial. It would be fun to have a sitcom. It would be fun to, you know, you know, just a list of crazy stuff. It'd be fun to be on the Tonight Show, whatever. All of those things have come true over time. And I think sometimes when you just, as you say, you get specific or you put your mind to something, by picking the destination, 
for the trip, then it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get there. It doesn't matter what route you take. You don't ever say, let's go somewhere today. And then everyone goes, okay, get in the car. We don't know where we're going. You say, we're going to Kansas City or let's take a trip to Vegas. Then you make the decisions from there. Are we going to fly? Are we going to drive? Are we going to, what are we going to do, right? We're going to take a bus. We're going to hitchhike. So, you know, to not set that down in some way where you can start to work around it is the greatest mistake. Anytime somebody says, I'll do anything they ask me to do, then that's what they will do for as long as they want. Because nobody graduates you to the next thing until you say, I want to be a director or I would like to be a producer. I'd like to, whatever. Like once you start to see the business, you see the part you might like or you're good at, nobody's eager Mm -hmm. to give you a raise or any leg up. Many writer's assistants have written scripts and unless they get the guts to come into somebody and say, would you read my script? Nobody's asking, do you have a script I can read? It doesn't happen that way. There's a tipping point in our careers, I will say, there's a tipping point where you get a vantage point. You go, there's nothing to lose. There's nothing to lose to make an album or there's nothing to lose to start a podcast. There's nothing to lose. Do it for the fun and the adventure. And if, if we're lucky, the money will come. I would like to talk to you about the new generation of stand-up. I'm impressed by lots of people that I recommend. And because you are a student of comedy and writing about the history of stand-up, I know that much of that is historical. Are there people that you love today, a Netflix specials or something that you would say, oh, you got to check these people out? When I was working at Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, so this is 2009, some people call it 2009 or 209, whatever, there's no correct way to say it that there was, so I was doing some sets at night, but I was mainly exhausted, but there was this young open mic comedian named Sam Morrell, who I just thought was great and befriended the kid. And I, you know, I not that I could help him in any way, but, but he's slowly over the years gotten really good. And then this goes back to exactly what we were saying, Pat. He couldn't get a Netflix special for whatever reason. And so he self-produces an hour stand-up special, maybe a little less, 50 minutes stand-up special at the comedy cellar where he works, paid for the whole thing himself, and put it up on YouTube, suddenly got Comedy Central to put it on their channel. But here's where he was a genius. And this is a great lesson. Comedy Central is like, oh, this is good. You'll make a lot of money. He's like, no, I don't want any commercial. I don't want any pop-ups. I don't want a commercial before it starts. I don't want a commercial because I am Sam Morrell, nobody comedian, nobody outside of comedy clubs, no, competing against Dave Chappelle on Netflix. And there's no commercials on that. I'm competing against Bill Burr mm-hmm. and Wanda Sykes on Netflix. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, okay. We can, so it's a promotional tool. Sure enough, because again, not just because he put it up there, because he's a great comic great young comic, great voice. It's now gotten over 10 million hits. And guess what? Netflix just gave him a special. Not based on that he was a great comedian, graced on the fact that he put in the sense, I hate to say it like this, butts in the seat virtually. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. if you can put butts in the seat, you can play any comedy club in the country. They don't care. So he was able to, that he had a following and then Letterman introduced, uh, interviewed him on his little show. And he's just great. So it was an incredible story to watch him go from open micer 
to a regular, mm-hmm. you know, late night regular at the comedy cellar to a touring comedian and then doing his own special, putting it up. And he's as good as any comic. He's just great. So if you haven't seen him, he's got his own style. And there's a bunch of these guys and women that are just incredible, incredible working right now. So that's just one story I wanted to share. No, I appreciate it. Cause it's funny. I saw Alex Edelman in New York and I thought, wow, this is a fresh new voice for me. I came around to seeing Nate Bergazzi and Bo Burnham. And there's just so many people who have a very unique set of skills and storytelling. And I'm happy to see it. I'm, I'm thrilled that there's a sort of a new generation. You know, when I first saw Dimitri Martin, I was like, oh, great. This is fantastic. Something visual, something funny, something musical. I think you can appreciate that too, because it, it, nothing delighted me more than to see you playing the piano on The Tonight Show and an appearance because I thought, no, you probably never thought you would, and I'm, I know you did it during a stand-up set, but the fact is you played the piano on The Tonight Show. That wasn't on your high school wish list, was it? Well, I didn't play piano at that time, but at one, at one time my goal was to play, I used to play the electric ukulele. And so mm-hmm. once I dropped that and switched over to the piano, yeah, it was a goal of mine to play that piano. Uh, yeah. So, and it also, I just like, I like adding value to my standup. Maybe it's because ultimately I don't think I'm just great enough as a straight standup, but I, I actually think I am pretty good as a standup, but I like adding value and I love music. It grounds me a little bit when I'm on stage with a piano as opposed to just standing alone. A little bit, not all, but so I think it actually helps the performance to tell you the truth. Well, I, th- I think it does too. And I'm fascinated by people who do it, whether you're doing it with a ukulele or you're doing it with a piano. What is it about interstitially doing some music and some stand up that allows you to turn the page? Like, what is it about that relationship? between comedy and music that is such a good added value? Well, one, I love music and I've always loved comedians that use music in their act. And this is uh, the truth. We're on a podcast. We might as well speak the truth that there's some comedians who look down on it, who feel like it's a Mm -hmm. cheat, who feel like it's, it's the equivalent of props or something like that, or doing a lip sync to a rap song at the end of, you know, to close out your act. But all I can say is uh, Steve Martin used to play the banjo on stage. He's a pretty good stand-up. And there was a guy, there was a guy named Pete Barbudi who used to do the Tonight Show and it's like a jazz musician. And he used to play music. And I was like, I, I don't know. I just it always appealed to me. And I think people love it. And I think people love it. And I like there's an entertain old school vaudeville entertainer side to me that it also appeals to. So and then, of course, when I look at someone like Bo Burnham, I'm just, my mind is absolutely thrilled, delighted, blown. His level, I'm going to use the word genius, is just, I can't believe he exists. That's how good he is. And I'm, you know, I know the guy a little bit, or I wouldn't say we're close friends, but I am just the biggest fan of that guy. And, he almost does his standup is almost performance art at this time. So he's really gone into oh, of a course. whole different area. But if you ever get a chance to watch his even early standup on Comedy Central, it's just delightful and delightful is understating it. It's it's thrilling to tell you the truth. 
No, I'm I'm so impressed by his acting and his directing yeah. and his special he did over COVID, just in terms of the unique perspective and voice that he did. He's a truly original guy. But I think he also just directed Kate Berlant, if you don't know who she is, just a really unique voice in stand-up comedy, kind of what we people might consider an alternative comic. I believe he just directed her special on Hulu. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Cool. Well, we are going to also look forward to more from you. I encourage folks to take a look at your book, The History of Stand-Up, the podcast of the same name that you do with Andrew Stevens and Wayne Fetterman together on uh, The History of Stand-Up can be found on all platforms. You can find out more about Wayne on waynefetterman.com. And you're going to find it fascinating and you're going to want that Chronicles of Fetterman (laughs) so that you can catch up when when his career blasts through the roof and he walks into any Club USA and bumps the comic off stage. You'll know why he deserves it. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you for having me, Pat Hazel. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to create.